You who have kids in your house, do you have any rules? Like house rules, like pick up your toys, don't leave your socks in the living room floor. When they get a little bit older, put your dishes away. I won't say how well we're doing with that. It's good to have house rules for a household to be healthy and well managed and well run. So part of what we've been seeing in First Timothy, what we're going to see is how do we live according to God's household rules? And like you have to teach your kids, you've got to train your kids to follow the rules. We have to be discipled into how do we live as, as God's household? How do we live as God's people in his church and for his church? Last week we saw that the goal of discipleship, the goal of, of gospel-centered instruction, the goal of, of the apostolic teaching that we have in the New Testament is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So that's easy, or easy to say, easy to outline, hard to live. So Paul is discipling Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus. Um, Timothy, is Paul described him as my true child in the faith. And what he meant by that is he, he gets my heart, he knows my teaching, he, he's following my, my example, and I can trust him to represent my, my teaching at, at the churches that he pastors. So he's pastoring a church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And Paul had urged Timothy, we saw in the first part of chapter 1 last week, Paul had urged Timothy to stop certain persons, certain persons, and today we actually get a couple names of certain persons, from teaching different doctrine that, other than the gospel-centered teaching that Paul had taught. They taught myths and genealogies and mixed with Jewish law. And Paul said this produced useless speculation and um, was, they were not able to transform sinners into religious, to righteous people. They couldn't really change people to be right with God and to live right for God with this non-gospel-centered teaching. Only the gospel that Christ had entrusted to Paul. And Paul said in verse 11, where we left off last week, that God has entrusted, Christ has entrusted the gospel to me. And so other than that gospel that he had taught Timothy and that Christ had entrusted to Paul, could only that could bring about the goal of gospel-centered instruction, which is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So uh, we're going to read... Uh, Again, what, what Sherry read, chapter 1, verses 12, actually through verse 20. So um, if you would please stand for the reading of the scripture. Paul says, I thank him who has, who give, has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made it shipwreck of the faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Father, we need your help to grasp this text and to take in what Jesus wants us to live as a result of this text. May your spirit be our teacher, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul expresses his gratitude, his gratefulness, that he had been entrusted with the gospel. He says Christ had given him strength. Jesus had called him to himself, appointed and empowered him to be an apostle who would take the gospel to the nation. So so he meant he gave me strength. He he appointed me. He, He anointed me for the work. He said Jesus strengthened him for his work because he judged him faithful. Now, how could he... How could God consider Christ faithful? Because in the next verse, Paul's going to say that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an insolent, uh, arrogant opponent. He was a violent attacker. What he means is that Christ knew he would make of Paul by his gracious calling of him into his his service. He knew what, what Christ was going to make of Paul. He said Jesus strengthened him for that purpose. Jesus knew Paul would, would be faithful, not because of his natural faithfulness, but because of Christ's grace. That is why Paul thanks Jesus who strengthened him rather than writing a book like The Seven Habits of a Highly Successful Apostle. If Christ has saved you, he appoints you to his service. Regardless of what you've done, He forgives, he redeems, and he he sets you up for serving his cause. In verse uh, 13, Paul expresses his amazement that Jesus would call him into his service because he had formerly been a blasphemer. I don't know how many of you think you were formerly a blasphemer. If you were a blasphemer, you were were cursing God's name. You were taking it in vain. You were uh, slandering Christ. So that's what Paul was doing. He defamed him by cursing Christ and his people, and he persecuted Jesus by persecuting his people. As Jesus said to Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. He stopped him, and he said, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me by persecuting his church? And he was an insolent opponent. You say, I don't even know what that means. Insolent, what is that? I don't use that word. Well, it means arrogant. It means he was rude, and, and the, the, the word has a sense of being violent. So he was rude and arrogant and violent, which is a bad combination. And he mistreated Christ's church that way. Paul was like a terrorist. He was like a member of ISIS. They think they're serving God, and meanwhile they're persecuting Christ's church. Hardly an obvious candidate for Jesus' service, right? I mean, check out his resume. Paul, what's your background? Well, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent attacker. All right, um, anybody got any more questions? We'll see you later. But 
he says he received mercy. God had mercy. He had compassion on Paul. He didn't give Paul what he deserved. He had mercy on him. God's, he, um, because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't realize he was opposing Christ, the Messiah. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah and, and that he had been raised from the dead. So he, he did what he did in ignorance. Now, does that mean that he deserved mercy? Well, by definition, you don't deserve mercy. Unlike the false teachers in Ephesus who were professing to be Christians, Paul wasn't rejecting the gospel from a place of understanding its content and, and claims, but from a place of ignorance and before he came to Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 10, chapter, um, 10-2 that his fellow Jews had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So that's how he, he got that. He understood that. That's where he lived. He had a zeal for God, but he didn't have true knowledge of the gospel. So God, being rich in mercy, who says of himself, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, had mercy in the Apostle Paul. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, the song, has on his tombstone, <clears throat> it's part of what, what's on there, once an infidel and a libertine, you say, what's that? An infidel is one who rejected the faith of Christ, and a libertine was one who just lived fully, openly, sinfully. So he was once an open sinner. He once rejected the gospel, was by rich, the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once tried to destroy. So uh, John Newton got amazing grace. And in verse 14, Paul talks about how the, with God's mercy came abundant, overflowing grace, giving, a, giving to Paul what he did not deserve. So mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, and grace is, is giving us what we don't deserve. He gave him overflowing grace. And in contrast to Paul's former sins of blasphemy, persecution, and violent arrogance, grace overflowed to him with faith and love. In order for Paul's sins to be overcome and replaced by faith and love, he first needed God's grace. Paul didn't read self-help books. He didn't go to uh, How to Become a Better You seminars. He didn't join a Blasphemers and Persecutors Anonymous group. He received grace so that his heart was ruled by faith in Christ and love for God and people. Indeed, his faith and love were in Christ Jesus. They weren't like just natural virtues that, that uh, were there. They were in Christ Jesus. They, were, they resulted from and were energized by the spiritual union he had with Christ. Like he had a wireless download, a wireless live stream of God's love and, and, and faith in Christ. The false teachers had rejected faith and love in Christ. They were into their myths and, and genealogies and misusing the, the Old Testament law. So Chuck Colson is a good example of one. Um, if you remember him from a few years ago, he was like the hatchet man for Watergate, and he got arrested, and he, he did jail time, and, and in that time he came to Christ. And he transformed from being like a hardcore, just get people out of the way, um, hatchet man for, for Nixon, to one who had love and faith and who did great Help help for the church by teaching them how to defend the faith and and uh, starting works of love for prisoners and all kinds of things, all kinds of good fruit came out of his life. So, amazing grace in his life as well. 
And then Paul says in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So the church now has been around for about 30 years. It's been about 30-some years since Jesus was uh, resurrected. And so there are certain sayings that are that are being uh, repeated in the churches. And so this is one of them. This is a, a trustworthy saying full of deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, he says. Paul now lays down the reason that God saves sinners through the gospel and not man-made religion or even the Old Testament law. He says that what he is about to say is trustworthy, and he says it, um, that the reason Christ came into the world was to save sinners. That's what he came to do. He came on a rescue mission for sinners. So what is a sinner? Well, a sinner is um, someone who sins. That's good for a start. A sinner is one who falls short of loving and obeying God in thought, word, and deed. Comes short of that. And Christ came to save not just mild sinners, but wild sinners as well. Sometimes it's harder to recognize yourself if you're a mild sinner, as you think. Paul, Paul named like the, the wild sinners last week in, in verses 9 and 10. The disobedient, the unholy, the profane, the sexually immoral, the, uh, those who kill their fathers and mothers, who uh, practice homosexuality, liars, perjurers, and so on. And th- then there's the more mild version of sins, of pride, harder to detect, gossip, things like that that, are, that we don't think so much as being sinful but are. So Christ came to save the mild sinners and the wild sinners, wherever you are, are in that spectrum. Not a competition, just recognizing that we're all there. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So that's what he came to do. Now, if people are basically good and just need some help to be a better person, Jesus didn't need to come and die on the cross if we just needed a little help to be a better us. We don't need Jesus to save us if we're just people who make mistakes occasionally and we're otherwise we're basically good people. But if we are under the guilt and power of sin against the holy God, and that's where we measure it, it's the holiness of God, his perfection, his exalted holiness, that's our standard. We need a Savior who can remove the guilt and overpower sin's power in our lives. Only Jesus Christ could accomplish this for us. Amazingly, Paul says that of all sinners, he is the foremost. He gets first prize for being the first and the worst. Why does Paul say he is the foremost of sinners? Is this just false humility? I'm just not any good. I'm so bad. Just to get people to say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself, Paul. Look, look how far you've come. I mean, you're an apostle, man. By direct call from Jesus. Your letters are bestsellers on Amazon. They just received 100,000 downloads. You're in the high-demand speaker circuit. Come on, don't be so hard on yourself. Paul really means it. 
And one place where he, he gives the reason for that is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So even though he knows he's forgiven of that, he doesn't get over the fact that he did that. And, and he, he, he recognizes it's still sin, even though it's forgiven sin. So that's part of the reason. In addition, because of God's grace in his life, because Paul had a deep sense of the greatness of, of his sin, because he, he was so devoted to the gospel and loved the gospel, his heart truly grasped how great a price Christ paid to save him from his sin. The more we grow in grace, the more aware we are of our sins, past and present. Paul was one self-righteous. That's really the worst kind of sinfulness, self-righteousness, where you don't recognize, where you think but by your own goodness you're, you're right with God. And you're, God is privileged to have you on his team. He had all the right stuff. Now he sees himself as the leading sinner. And even though he doesn't persecute the church anymore, he actually builds up the church. He doesn't blaspheme God anymore. Even though he's not a violent aggressor anymore. As he said in Romans 7, he says, the good that I would do, that I don't do, and the bad stuff I don't want to do, I do that. He still sinned. And he sees it as worse because he he knows more about who Christ is. But in verse 16 he says, but I receive mercy for this reason. So why did God have mercy on Paul? He was to be a, a, a display, an illustration of God's grace and mercy and salvation. If God gives mercy to someone as sinful as Paul, he can save anyone. God was patient with the persecuting, ignorant Paul, who was Saul back then, until it was time to save him. God purposed that Paul would be a display of his perfect patience so that sinners could see that no matter how long and severe their sin has been, they only need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. Paul becomes the example for the false teachers to show them that it is the gospel only, not spiritual techniques, man-made religion, myths, speculations, Old Testament law, uh, misuse of that, that presents the way of salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He becomes the example for all time that God, though he is just to leave us in a, to eternal judgment, he would be just to leave us to eternal judgment for our sins, patiently endures our unbelief, ready to pour out his overflowing grace and mercy to save us. Maybe you think you've been rejecting God too long for him to accept you. Maybe you think that your pattern of sinning has been too entrenched for God to have mercy on you. But you need to know God's perfect patience. He longs to be gracious to you. To have mercy on you. If he was patient with Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the violent abuser, who thought he who thought he was serving God, he may still be merciful to you. Christ loves to save the worst of the worst. So you're in a grand place to receive his mercy if you if you're in that category. 
Well, Paul can't help himself, and in verse 17, he launches into extolling and praising God. As he's reflected on how God has had mercy on him, he, he, he just praises and exalts God. He says, God is the king of ages. He is the eternal king. No wonder he is able to be patient with sinners such as Paul, John, George, and Ringo, and yeah, and Gary, and you, and Roy, and Jim, and all of us. He is carrying out his eternal plan of redemption of people in spite of opposition to the gospel by false teachers such as those at Ephesus. He's carrying out his plan to save. He's got the eternal picture down, and he's able to, to pull it off. God is immortal. He doesn't get sick, old, die. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't corrupt. He doesn't break down like everything else we know of. And he's invisible. He is spirit. He isn't like anything else on earth. He's the only God. He has no rivals. He has no term of office that limits his time and rule to do his will. Such an awesome God, and we use that word to describe everything, awesome, from pancakes to cars to, I had an awesome time last night. We, that awesome is no longer awesome, but if anything's awesome, God is awesome. And this deserves that word. Um, he's a God worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. Get used to exalting him. We're not just going through the motions when we exalt his name. We will be glorifying and, and honoring God forever for who he is, for his eternal glory and, and greatness, for his great mercy in saving us. Yeah, we're never going to forget. We're never going to forget that. I mean, through a million years from now, you're still going to be thanking God to, that he rescued you from sin. You're never going to get over it. And Paul's example of not getting over how God had mercy on him is an example of how we will praise him in the ages to come. Paul had been a Christian and an apostle, so he's a pretty privileged guy. For around 30 years by this time, yet he is still able to experience joyful awe over the fact that God had mercy on him. Those of us who have been Christians for years, does your heart, does my heart, still exalt in praise and thankfulness for God's mercy? I mean, can, can we do this, what Paul does? Do we have this much excitement over God's rescuing us from his judgment? Or are our hearts jaded and take it for granted? Paul says in verse 18, he returns to the charge, to the command he's giving to Timothy. That is, to the orders, to the assignment he is entrusting to Timothy. He's discipling Timothy for this. This is a priority, he says in verse 18. This is a priority, Timothy. This might feel like kind of a jolt after Paul has been expressing his gratitude for saving him and calling him into his service, which had just led to the glorious praise he had just declared, but it actually fits Paul's purpose well. Paul was extolling how God had saved him through the gospel, not just because it was something that he liked to share, which he did, 
whenever possible, but, but because he was using his story as an example of the power of the gospel to save, it is no small thing for these false teachers to be distorting and downplaying the gospel. So it makes sense for, for Paul to get back. Okay, Timothy, now we need to get back to what, what I'm charging you to do. Paul wants Timothy to feel the weight of this, to motivate him to st- step up to the plate and carry out his assignment to stop those who are, were teaching different doctrine that was deviating from the gospel. Now, this sounds so unnecessary to our, our modern ears in our times, in our culture, where we don't think there is any, any one set of religious beliefs that is more true than any other. We think as long as you're sincere in your beliefs and as long as it makes you a better person, what difference does it make what you believe? We don't think this way about other aspects of life, but when it comes to spiritual things we do, like if, if you've got an ingrown toenail... And the doctor says, well, we need to amputate. You, you, you're going to hope that he's going to hold to the truth in that situation. But he's sincere about it. He sincerely thinks he needs to amputate your foot. It's not, not a good idea. How much more important is, that, is it that we be certain of truths that make a difference for our eternal well-being? This is not a matter of personal opinions and preferences and what we just like to think. I'm always leery when someone says, well, I just like to think God is like, and then they start filling in the blank with whatever they think God is like. It's not a matter of that. For example, we, we pray for Muslims during the, the, the holy days of Ramadan because we know that in spite of how sincere they may be in their devotion, they cannot have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ, from faith in him and as Jesus' Savior and Lord. And many are aware they, they have no uh, assurance of God that God will accept them. And they're right. They need Jesus. So Paul reminds Timothy about the prophecies that were spoken about him. He doesn't state what those prophecies were. He assumes Timothy will remember but they, they had something to do with Timothy's calling to uphold the truth, to defend and declare the gospel. What he was called to do, Christ would empower him to do. Christ would enable Timothy to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. Until Christ returns to establish his kingdom of peace, Christian living and ministry involves warfare. Not physical, not military type warfare, but spiritual Yes, in Christ we have peace with God, and he does give us peace as a fruit of the Spirit, for sure. But we need to also have a wartime mentality. Not that we're contentious or looking for conflicts, but that we hold fast to the truth of the gospel and advance the gospel, which is what Paul says in verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience. You wage the good warfare by holding faith in a good conscience. Right belief and right behavior that comes from a right heart. Both right belief and right behavior are inseparable. If you lose one, you lose the other. By rejecting gospel faith and a good conscience, you make shipwreck of your faith. You know, many people are are, um, taking boats over from Africa to, to get to Europe. They're trying to migrate to Europe from from African nations. They put their trust in those whom they hope can get them across the Mediterranean. Many of the boats are rickety and and fail, and many are losing their lives because of that. They're suffering shipwreck. 
Many people are like the navigators of the Titanic. They're holding fast to the truth. They're not holding fast to the truth of their situation. Unaware of the dangers that are just below the surface, they suffer a disastrous shipwreck. And Paul says, let me give you some examples in case you're wondering who I'm talking about. In verse 20, he names two of them who have made a shipwreck of their faith. The famous, the infamous, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They may have been leaders in the church. At any rate, they did not hold faith in a good conscience and made shipwreck of their faith. What is Paul talking about by saying he handed them over to Satan? Say, Paul, how can you do that? That's, isn't that like way over the top severe? I mean, you're crazy? That's pretty harsh. Before we consider what it means to hand over someone to Satan, we can see that what Paul intends is not to do them harm just for the sake of cruel and unusual punishment, as if there's no hope for, for redemption. Rather, it is for the purpose of their learning. They're supposed to learn something when they're handed over to Satan. It's for their instruction that they may learn not to blaspheme, not speak wrongly about God or Christ, and so lead others astray. It's not going to Satan's classroom. Welcome. I'm your instructor. I'm Satan. Sit down. I got syllabuses here. Syllabi. There's a term paper due at the end of the semester. It's not that kind of school. Somehow Paul had already taken action to put these two guys out of the church so that removing them from the spiritual protection and covering of the church so that they are more fully exposed to Satan's power. The Bible says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. So for these two to learn not to blaspheme, Paul expels them from the church fellowship. The goal is that they would feel more acutely the wrong of of forsaking faith in a good conscience and repent and be restored. That's his goal. That they would learn. They would learn under Satan's tutelage. What's amazing is that God can use Satan as a disciplinary tool to instruct professing Christians not to continue in false beliefs or, or wrong behaviors. So I don't recommend it. But if it has to happen, to restore someone, it has to happen. And Paul isn't doing this in a, in a mean and cruel attitude, hoping for the worst. As, he, as he'll say this in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. I'll just read this for you. This is what Paul says about how to get someone out from under Satan's rule. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the, tr- knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having, after being captured by him to do his will. So that's his goal. This is an example for Timothy as to how he may need to deal with others. The gospel is too precious and powerful for salvation to allow distortions of it to remain unchallenged. This is not the work of a self-righteous person, Paul. As he said, this saying is trustworthy and and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
At age 82, John Newton, again, the author of Amazing Grace, said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Father, we we give you praise. You are the king of the ages. You are immortal. You never corrupt. You are invisible. The only God. To you be honor and glory forever and ever. We thank you, Father, for having mercy on sinners. We thank you that you have shown us that that's what we are. We're not just victims of bad circumstances. We're not just good people who need a little help. We're under the power and and penalty of sin, and we need your rescue. And you gladly, joyfully planned and purposed through all eternity to, to send us such a rescuer in your son, Jesus Christ, who bore your judgment against our sin on the cross. And as the great shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of the eternal covenant was raised from the dead, you resurrected him in power over our sin and gave us life in him through faith. Father, may we be so grateful for that, and may we live in your service for the sake of the gospel, doing whatever it takes, Father, to to hold fast to faith and a good conscience for the sake of the gospel. Help us to do this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.